Good morning, friends. If you are still looking for a seat in the back of the room, there's always this front row. You pay extra money at a T-Swift concert for these seats, okay? And they're free. Hey, we're, we're continuing in our series, This We Believe. We've been taking time to walk through some theological understandings of what we believe about God, humanity, and we're going to turn the corner next week to what we believe about the ecclesia, the body of Christ, the church. But today we're going to finish this kind of three-part section in the middle of what we believe about humanity. And we, we, we've been saying that what we believe about so many things in life really matters. For what we believe influences how we behave, how we act and interact in the world around us, how we treat ourselves, how we treat others, how we treat the creation, the world. And so what we believe is fundamental to how we behave. And, and so we've been looking at what we believe about God, what we believe about the human creation, the human condition, and today we're going to be looking at the cure. There really is a solution to our problem today. We've been looking at this statement of faith that we ascribe to here at Calvary that says this, we believe that God created Adam and Eve in his image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. So the first week we looked at that, that very beginning of the statement that we believe that, Adam, that we were created in his image. That as a human being, you're not simply the evolutionary advancement of an animal. But that you are distinctly different, created on purpose, with a purpose that you truly, really matter, and the life that you live really matters. And so human beings get their dignity, value, and worth, not because of their accomplishments, not because of their accolades, but because of their identity being made in the image of God. And we simply said the image of God in the simplest terms means this. When he looks at you, he sees something of himself. There's something in us that when God sees us, he sees something of himself. And we looked at the first two chapters of Genesis that he created us male and female. And he gave us work to do. And Adam and Eve lived in this covenant of works. And then there was Genesis 3 that we looked at last week. Which is a description of our present condition in which this image has been warped and bent that the world we live in now is not the Genesis 1-2 world where we walk with God in the cool of the day, in right relationship with God, in right relationship with one another, in right relationship even with ourselves and the creation, but all of that has been broken and distorted because of sin. And though the word sin has fallen out of fashion with us today, it is the root issue of all of our suffering, pains, griefs, and sorrows. And if you are looking for counsel today of what it means to be human, how to be restored in your right mind or in your body, and you are seeking counsel that does not account for your sin and the sin of the world, it is not holy, worthy counsel. It's like plucking off the heads of dandelions and watching them grow back every single week. You have to deal with the root issue. And the root issue, as described in our statement here, is that we are sins, both by nature 
and by choice, and we looked at this last week, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages, the consequence of sin is death. Death is the separation from being in union with God. That's the consequence of our sin. And we are sinned by both nature, meaning we're born into it. Remember the psalmist, Psalm 51, my transgressions are always before me. Surely I was a sinner from the time my mother conceived me. I was born in this. And a conversation I had after last week was how unfair that sounds. Like, why is, it, why is that fair? That I didn't do what Adam and Eve did. Why would I be held accountable to their consequences and be born into sin? Now, we looked at the brokenness of the world, and in many ways I've experienced the brokenness of the world, not by anything that I've done, just as a result of brokenness. My youngest son has a birth disorder because of the brokenness of the world. But over the years, I have worked with many young children from infancy to adulthood who experience the consequence of fetal alcohol syndrome. It is brutal to watch these young children be born in the consequences of decisions that their mother has made that perhaps their father also has made. And now that is a result of someone else's decisions in which someone else has to live in those consequences. And perhaps that's a very clear and vivid and consequential image of us being born into humanity, is that there were decisions that our parents had made in which now impacts us. It's like in our DNA. But even if you don't think you're born as a sinner, you still think you're born as a good person, it takes you about 30 seconds on the planet, and then you're a sinner by choice. And so everyone in this room is a sinner, and the consequence of that is that we live, as we see, under God's wrath. That's a terrible word. If sin is unfashionable, surely who wants to talk about wrath? But wrath is actually a wonderful thing. Wrath is the right and fitting response to evil. If you saw evil in the world, if you were a parent and saw evil being done to your child, how would you respond? In what? What would be the word? Wrath. It would be your right and fitting, loving and just response to evil happening to your children. And so God, who is love and who is justice, his wrath is the right and fitting response to evil, to sin. Well, what's the problem? You and I are sinners. And so that means that's his right and fitting response to us. That's bad news. That's bad news. And so we looked at this last week, and you have to recognize that there's first bad news before you recognize that there really is a cure. And there's a lot of voices out there today trying to offer cures. I want to offer the cure to the human condition today as revealed in the scriptures. And it's from the first pages to the last pages. You need both Testaments. You need the Old Testament and the New Testament. Any church or Christian author or speaker that you listen to that says you don't need the Old Testament, they have lost it. And the reason is because from the very first pages of the Bible, the cure is spoken about. It's called, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, which is like the, the earliest description of the gospel, the good news, because God would not abandon us, but has sought to do three things that we see in our statement. 
is to, rec- to rescue us, to reconcile us, and renew what was lost, that image, the fullness of the image. And so we go to Genesis chapter 3 in the very beginning, and here is God has called this serpent, the devil, into account. And this is the protoevangelium, the gospel on the very first pages of Genesis of the work of Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Literally meaning like you will, you will cause a wound in his life his, to the heel, but this offspring is going to crush your head. It's a mortal wound. He's going to defeat you. Now, this is more than just, hey, humanity and snakes aren't going to get along. This is, this is a prophecy that from Adam and Eve, a human being will come, which will destroy this serpent in the garden. The serpent that lied to Adam and Eve, this serpent that deceived them, will truly be destroyed. And the works of this serpent will be destroyed. And so what you see throughout the story of Genesis is how God starts pulling this plan together. So he goes from the offspring of Adam and Eve to through this line of Seth to the line of Abraham to Isaac. And then he narrows it down to the King David. And so what you see is God's plan gets more and more specific from the offspring of, of Eve to the family of Abraham to the line of David in the city of Bethlehem there will be born the promised rescuer. And this birth will be unlike the births that you and I have experienced. For he will not be born into sin, he will be holy. This is how Luke accounts for the birth of Christ as the messenger speaks to Mary. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 35. An angel answered her when she's asking, how will this be? How can I be pregnant? I'm a virgin. It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, the true Son of God. Abraham was the first Son of God. Now the true Son of God will come. The one who is holy, the one who will crush the serpent's head, the cure to the curse now, sometimes people ask me, maybe they've asked you, why does God have to take on flesh? We believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, truly God and truly human. It's because we have a human condition that can only be cured through the works of the God-man who is God and human. The author of Hebrews describes this reality this way. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, like you have flesh and blood, oxygen in your lungs, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil, the serpent. And what does Christ come to do? To deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the human race 
has been subject to slavery because of their sin. And here Jesus Christ, the promised rescuer from Genesis 3, is on the scene taking on flesh. Why? To set those who are born in the flesh free. He is the all-sufficient cure. And what you see in the story is that Jesus Christ parallels many things from Adam and Israel, because he's the true Adam, the true offspring, the one that would come and rescue. Now, I'm just going to paint a quick picture of the end of Jesus Christ's life. The night he was betrayed, do you remember where Jesus was? After the upper room, where did he retreat to? The garden. And so we have a new garden scene happening. Now, what happened in the Genesis garden scene with Adam and Eve is, is they listened to the voice of the serpent. Did God really say, surely there's a better way. There's another way. God's holding out on you. And now the son of God, the holy one, is back in the garden. And in that garden scene, this is Luke chapter 22, it says, when he came to this place, he said to them, his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. What did the serpent come to do with Adam and Eve? Is tempt them. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is the better Adam doing here? He is trusting the plans, the will, the voice of God. And what we see is that the angelic hosts actually come and strengthen him, and he sweats blood. What is Jesus doing? He is resisting all sorts of assaults to get him to listen to another voice, another way, to get him off the course to the cross. Did God really say you got to go to the cross? Did God really say you're going to save humanity on the cross? And here's Jesus, the perfect man. Father, if there is another way, I'll listen. But if there is no other way to save humanity besides the cross, I will follow you there. I'll follow you there. And so what you see is the Son of God in the garden being obedient. Where the first son of God was disobedient, the true son of God is obedient. He will rescue us. It's amazing that even after the resurrection, there is a bit of this garden imagery. There's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary outside of Philadelphia by the name of Brandon Crow, and he writes this book, The Last Adam. And there he's paralleling the, the works of Christ in contrast to the works of Adam, as we'll look at in just a moment. But in one of his observations, he says, it's fascinating that you have these garden scenes in which Jesus is the obedient son of God where Adam had failed. And even upon resurrection, this is John chapter 20. John chapter 20, Mary runs to the tomb. It's empty. We're looking for the resurrected Jesus. And she sees somebody who's walking towards her. And who does she think he is? The gardener. Isn't that interesting? This is John chapter 20. He says, 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the, the gardener. It's like, it's like the true redeemed human. It's like when God made humanity, he made them gardeners in his good and right creation. And their image was not bent or warped. And here Christ has redeemed the image of God that was bent in us. It's like there's something in Mary that says, he looks like, he looks like a gardener. It's as though a man that I've never seen before. Fundamentally different. See, this is the work of Jesus, is to right the curse from Genesis. The theological underpinnings of this is, is, is described in Romans 5 by Paul. Here's the works of Jesus Christ. We looked at this a little bit last week, but going back to chapter 5, verse 6, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, God does something so amazing. He shows his love for you. Like while we were weak, while we were still rebellious, he shows his love for you in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the, the truth about humanity is that we are sinners both by nature, it's in our DNA, and by choice. And there's no way to break free from that. And the consequences of sin is death. So we're dead. We're dead men walking. But God demonstrates his love for us this way. When he sees you in your sin, he sees you worthy to save. When he sees you in your sin, his love moves towards you as somebody worthy to save. He goes on in verse 9, Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What is, what's the wrath? The wrath of God is his right and fitting response to evil. How do you get rid of evil in your life? You have to be justified by the work of Jesus Christ. The kid version of justified is just if I'd never sinned. So what the work of Christ does for us in, in justifying us is putting us in a right position with God just if I'd never sinned. And so if you'd never sinned, would you experience the wrath of God in your life? No. You're freed from it. The wrath of God is his right and fitting response to evil. And so if we're justified, we're removed from our sin, then we're also removed from the wrath of God. So he saves us from the wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see the three things in there. You, you were rescued. Then you've been reconciled. Reconciliation is bringing two estranged parties back together. And then you're, you're saved. You're renewed this is what our boast is. This is Romans 5.11. More than that, we rejoice in God. This is why we sing praise songs in the morning when we gather as the people of God. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
What's repaired is the relationship with God that was lost in Eden. And he, he describes this work as the undoing work that we experienced under Adam. So he goes on. This is the verse we looked at last week, chapter 12, verse 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because, to all, men because all sinned. And so the consequence of Adam and Eve is in the DNA of humanity, and we act this way. But here's the great reversal. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. It's so much better. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more having the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The idea of, abound, of, of abounding is, is this idea of like having a cup and filling it, and it just keeps flowing out. There's not enough to contain it. And so the work of Jesus Christ is flowing out to all who would receive it. Verse 15, sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 15, 15, 16. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So those who are born in Adam, raise your hand if you're born into humanity. There's judgment. But there's also this, there's this, there's this gift that anyone can receive to belong to Christ. And it's not judgment, but it's justification. It's the forgiveness of all your sins if you belong to Christ. And so what we need, the cure, is like you need a new birth. Now, if, if you know your Bible very well, you know that there's a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus in the middle of the night, didn't want to be associated with him yet. And he asked Jesus, like, how, how do you deal with this sin problem? How do you enter the kingdom of God? How does anyone get saved from this predicament? And Jesus said, well, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, oh, I don't know how to do that. And then he gives us a word picture of crawling back into his mother's womb. And you're like, thanks, Nicodemus, for that one. And Jesus says, man, you're a teacher of, of the scriptures and you don't know these things. You have to be born from above. Like this is a divine work of God in people's lives. This is grace. But you have to be born again. You need to belong, you need to belong to a new father. You belong to this family. Everyone was born into this family. Now you can actually choose if you want to belong into this other family. You can choose to receive the work of Jesus Christ and be adopted into his family and have his DNA, his works, his, what the Bible calls, righteousness. And so in Adam, there's judgment. You feel that guilt. You feel that shame. In Jesus Christ, oh, there's liberty and forgiveness. There's justification, as he says. He goes on in 17, for if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. If you're only born into humanity through Adam, our experience is death. 
For all those who are born into Christ, well, you're born into life. This is truly the reverse of the curse. The cure for our sufferings, our sins, is the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Romans 5, 19, we'll just look at this real quick. It says, for as by one man's disobedience, this is that man in the garden, Genesis 3. Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the reverse of all of these things. In Adam is disobedience. In Christ is obedience. The thing we are called to do, the things we are called to be. This is why we also have this statement in our statement of faith about the works of Jesus Christ. We say this, we believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only grounds for salvation. It's not the only grounds because you're trying to be exclusive. It's the only grounds because it's the only sufficient measure of forgiveness. Remember in the Genesis 3 story, after Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover themselves with their own sufficiency, trying to make themselves fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And God had to what? Shed the, the blood of an innocent animal and clothe them with animal skins. And we said that was the very beginning picture of what it would cost humanity to forgive sins, is the shedding of blood. And for, for centuries, it was the sacrifice of animals to cover over sins, but never to cure them. And here Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the all-sufficient, one-time sacrifice. Through the shedding of his perfect, obedient life, the many would be made, not just covered, made righteous. And so we must take on the life of Christ. Galatians 3, those who've been baptized in Christ, clothe themselves in Christ. The beautiful thing about this work is that it's not just for humanity, but the work of Jesus Christ is actually cosmic in its effects. The work of Jesus Christ isn't just to save humanity, get you out of earth, get you to heaven, but he's to restore all things, to restore all of creation and its effects on sin. Paul goes on just a couple chapters later in chapter 8, where he simply says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, like there are real sufferings, but they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and the daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there really is present suffering. And there's a longing that you experience, that I experience, that, can I just get kind of weird? The trees, the earth, the weather, long for to be redeemed. There are so many broken areas of brokenness in our world that we experience because the creation itself experiences the curse. And so I know your heart longs for a cure. It doesn't take you long to look around the world and see all of its disease and its disaster to recognize the whole earth longs to be set free. The whole earth is groaning for the work of Christ that began at Calvary to be realized ultimately for the restoration of all things to bring us back in harmony with what we experienced originally in the garden. And so the work of Christ is not just individually, not even corporately for the people, but it's actually cosmic in its effects. He goes on in Romans 8, verse 20 and 29, says, And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So what's God doing in our life is, what's the good he's working out is, is to conform us back to what has been lost, the true image of God. Look at, look at this, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What did he predetermine? For all those who are going to be saved, he predestined a transforming work. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. So if Jesus Christ is the true picture of humanity, the God-man, and he has conquered death and lives in life, that is what we want to be conformed into. We want to be transformed into that image. Now, that is a drastically different counsel than the counsel the world gives us today. The world says, okay, you want to talk about an identity crisis? you got to start looking within. Like, the truest part of you is within you, and your desires are the truest part of you, and that needs to come out and be expressed and be celebrated everywhere. You're the answer to you. And we would say the scriptures actually teach fundamentally the opposite thing. That what's in me is sin. And what I need is not from within, but from outside. I don't need to celebrate what's in here. I need to confess what's in here. I need to repent of what's in my heart and receive the works of Jesus Christ. And his ongoing work to transform me, to transition who I am as a sinner to who I am as a beloved image bearer of Jesus Christ. For that is the true renewed humanity. And it's only done because of his work. And so we must surrender ourselves to it. 
We fix our eyes on it, our gaze on it, and we want his glory, his work, his image to change us. Paul speaks about this mystery, and man, it's a mystery. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, when you, when you come to saving faith, it's like a veil has been removed. Like you see Jesus for who he really is. And he says, and we all with unveiled faces, like we see who Christ is. It says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so in the simplest principle, we are becoming what we behold. We as human beings are conformed to the things that we love, the things we meditate on, the things we pursue. And here Paul speaks about this divine mystery. For those with unveiled faces, with eyes to see who Christ is, as you behold him, as you meditate on him, as you fix your eyes on him, as you think about him, as you pursue him and you follow him, while you're doing that, the work of God is that he's He's forming you into that image. He's making you look like that. He's taking what's true of Jesus and making it true of you. He's fundamentally changing you into the image of God, renewed and restored. And so we might just simply say that the first Adam brought us all sin because he took from the tree. The second Adam, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, gave us salvation because he took himself on the tree. He took up the tree. He went into Calvary and climbed on the cross following the voice of God for the salvation of all humanity. And so if we go back to our statement of faith, this is why we say this about what we believe about humanity. We believe that God created Adam and Eve. We believe that God created you on purpose for a purpose. But they sinned as we sin. When tempted by Satan in union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. Alienated from God and under his wrath. And the cure to that curse is that only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed? Let me ask you this. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to do that work in your life? That's why he came. It's to reverse the curse in your life. Have you received him? It's an act of grace. And it's received by confession. I confess that I'm a sinner. And repentance. I'm sorry that I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me of my sins? And I take you as my Lord and Savior. I surrender my life to you. Have you done that? Let me ask you this. For those in the room who haven't, what are you waiting for? I know you're tired of the sin and shame and guilt. What are you waiting for? God has already demonstrated his great love for you in that while you're a sinner, Christ died for you. What are you waiting for? Come to him today. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that in your kindness you have made us and in your grace you have saved us. Father, we pray that every single man and woman in this room would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and that you in a divine mystery would transform us from a broken image of sin into a repaired and whole image that looks like Christ. And so, Father, I ask that you would be the one that speaks divinely into every single person's life here. I pray that your voice would be the loudest voice in each of our lives and that we would know who we are because we know whose we are, that we belong to you, and that we are becoming like you as we behold your son, Jesus Christ. In the mighty name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen.